Please be seated. Take out your copy of God's Word, if you would. We, we always want to encourage you to see it for yourself, to read the Word as it's being read and preached. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 8. If you're using the Bible in your row, you'll find Hebrews 8 on page 1005. And for several chapters now, the author of Hebrews has been making the case that in the Lord Jesus, we have a high priest who is superior, who is greater in every way than all of those Old Testament priests who had come and gone over the previous uh, 1,400 years or so since God instituted that priesthood through Moses. And the author of Hebrews addressed it with this argument about a, a very mysterious character that we looked at over the last few weeks called Melchizedek. Now he wants us to understand, what's the point of all this? Why is he talking about Melchizedek? Why is he talking about this Old Testament priesthood and how the Lord Jesus is greater than all of that? And it's certainly not just for intellectual fodder that you and I would have all the right answers. He intends for this to be fuel for worship and for service because at the heart of all of it is the glory of the Lord Jesus. So all that he's saying here in Hebrews is really to be fuel for worship so that we would serve the Lord Jesus and worship the Lord Jesus with all that we have and all that we are. That's the point of all of this. So before I read God's word, let's pray that God would help us to that end. Lord, we confess our frailty. We confess that oftentimes we are slow to understand and we are quick to be distracted. Our minds are quick to wander. We're quick to think about our own earthly comforts, our own earthly appetites. But we pray, O oh God, that now as we come to your word, you would take away all distractions and you would give us understanding and we would understand the glory of what the Lord Jesus has done for us in what you call in your word the new covenant. And we pray that we would see and behold the glory of the new covenant this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God. If you were to read through the book of Exodus, imagine you're doing a, a Bible reading plan where you read through in a year, you would normally get to Exodus somewhere around February. And if you got as far as chapters 25 through about 31, you'd hit a pretty difficult patch. Now, it's not necessarily difficult content to understand, but it's a little bit difficult because each of those chapters goes into painstaking detail about the measurements and the design specifications of the tabernacle, which God ordered the Hebrew people to construct as their place of worship while they were journeying in the wilderness and even once they settled into the promised land. And so you might be reading it 3,400 years later, and you might wonder, what in the world do I need to know about the tabernacle that makes sense today? Why do I need to know how many cubits tall the bread table was? Why do I need to know what decorations were carved into the golden lampstand? Or what difference does it make to me today what wood the poles of the altar were made out of? You know, at first reading, it seems like God is both precise and arbitrary in his designs. It seems like God's just sort of making all of this up for no reason. But there's one repeated phrase that you would come to that explains that these instructions weren't arbitrary. Yes, they were precise, but not arbitrary. You remember in, in Exodus 25, Moses has been up on the mountain receiving God's law, and then God gives Moses the design for the tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, verse 9, and 26.30, and 27.8, he's given the same thing we're told in verse 5 of our passage today. It says, you're to do each of these steps after the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Notice it doesn't say Moses was told to build the tabernacle according to what he was told, but according to what he was shown. In other words, Moses saw something and he was supposed to build a copy of it. And it seems that what happened was that God, in this time with Moses there, somehow pulled back the curtain of heaven for Moses to see, sort of like what we see in Revelation, as John gets to see behind the curtain. But God is 
pulled back the curtain of heaven for Moses to see. And when Moses looked into heaven, into this incredible celestial city, he saw a true temple or a true tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And so what Moses is told to do by following the pattern that he was given, he's being told, in a sense, to recreate a glimpse of heaven on earth. The tabernacle that Moses was to build with all of its very intricate furnishings and decorations, it it was a faint replica of what Moses saw when the curtain was pulled back and he was able to see in heaven. Now, certainly it wasn't a cheap replica. Just the gold of the tabernacle alone a few years ago, it, it was estimated to have been worth about $30 million just in gold. Not to mention the other materials and the the tens of thousands of man hours required to build the temple or the tabernacle. But compared with the glory of its heavenly counterpart, it was just a cheap replica. And so again, I think we have to ask the question, why? First, we asked, why in the world do I need to know about the size? Why do I need to know about what decorations were on the lampstand? But now we need to ask the question, Why did God want Moses to create a replica of what he saw in heaven on earth? And the answer is because God wanted these replicas, which verse 5 in our passage today calls a copy and shadow of heavenly things. He wanted those things to teach us both the beauty and glory of worship as it is in heaven but also to cause us to ask the question, how in the world could I, a sinner, join in such beautiful and glorious worship that happens day after day in heaven? So we're to see the the beauty of worship in heaven, and then we're to ask the question, how can I be part of this? Or another way to say it, God brought a glimpse of the glory of heaven to earth in all of those Old Testament designs in order to bring the dust of the earth to heaven. That's you and me. It was through those old covenant copies and shadows that God would bring the new covenant, the more excellent new covenant reality of salvation in Christ to us, which alone can make us fit for heaven. And that's what we're going to look at today. God brought a glimpse of heaven to earth, and then God's bringing the dust of the earth up to heaven. So let's look first. God brought a glimpse of heaven to earth. You know, the the Old Testament is so full of detail about so many different things. Detail about different forms of sacrifices and various laws and what kind of sacrifices you have to, 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 to offer based on which of those laws you broke and the various priests priestly duties in making those sacrifices. You know, it was all extremely visually engaging to a people who were worshiping an invisible God. It, It helped them to make sense of the God they couldn't see. But that old covenant worship that was so visible, it was so earthy, it was never intended to be the finished product. 
Old covenant worship is, was never intended to be where people ended up. It was to point to something else. One pastor, I think, did a great job of explaining it this way. He said, the old covenant and the, and the new covenant go together like a two-act play. The old covenant is, is act one and by itself is incomplete. It, it doesn't make total sense. But then you get act two. And if you were to go back and look at act one, act one now makes sense to you. Because it was all fulfilled in Act 2. Well, we could say that the Old Testament, with all of that intricate design, was Act 1. It was all pictures and symbolism. But it was pointing to something. It was foreshadowing what was to happen in Act 2 when the Lord Jesus came. Let me just give you an example. And we're going to see more of these, Lord willing, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9. But think of the temple. The temple had that center court called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place where sinful man could not draw near to the presence of God except for one day per year through a high priest who sprinkled the blood of a sacrifice onto the mercy seat. But it happened again and again, year after year after year. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3.25 that that mercy seat was a, a symbol of the work that Christ was going to do in making satisfaction for our sins. And so if we were to look, we could go to every piece of furnishing in the Old Testament tabernacle. We, we could see in all the designs that their job was to point to the coming Lord Jesus. The same was true of the Levitical priesthood. You had Dozens and dozens of priests every day serving in the tabernacle from four, the 1400s when it was instituted until the 900s when the temple replaced the tabernacle. And they served in the temple until it was destroyed 40 years after the death of Christ. Those priests represented what needed to be done for the people's salvation. But it's significant because it had to be done over and over and over again. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away human sin. And here's what Hebrews 8 is saying. Those earthly priests, they were just stand-ins. They were pale copies of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. When it says the true tent, it's not saying there's a false tent. It's saying there's an imitation, that, that earthly tabernacle. And then the temple, those were imitations of heavenly realities. And so those priests labor there day after day. But you know what Jesus is doing? He's seated in heaven. That language of Jesus being seated is not just incidental. You don't sit down until your work is complete. And so the priests, they never got to sit down when they were on duty because there was always more work to do. But Jesus being seated, you know what you need to hear when you're reading Hebrews and you see that Jesus is being seated there in heaven? You need to hear the words of John 19.30. It is finished. Jesus is saying the final sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice has been given. 
Nothing more needs to be offered for your salvation. His sacrifice upon the cross fulfilled what those thousands of sacrifices, hundreds of thousands in the 1,400 years prior, only foreshadowed. One sacrifice that could take away sin once for all. And so the author of Hebrews is saying here, don't get hung up on these earthly shadows. Lift your eyes up to heaven where Jesus is. Look at your great high priest. I know you can't see him in bodily form, but he's there. Right now, he's there. He's interceding for you. He's ministering for your sake in the heavenly places. He's the reality. So don't get distracted by these earthly things. You know, that's, that's, that's what Hebrews is about. You've got these believers. They were raised Jewish. And then they come to follow Christ. But then they start looking back and the grass is really green on the other side of the temple, isn't it? You know, we had it really nice. All of our friends were there. And we had this highly visual worship. Now all we have is this invisible high priest. We had the sacrifices. We could, we could see our sins being taken away in a sense. We can't see Jesus now. And the author of Hebrews says, that's the point. That's the point. He's the reality. And right now in heaven, he ever lives to intercede for you. He is really doing what all these faint, pale shadows replicated and represented. But he's the reality. And in Hebrews, this author is trying to explain to his flock who is so tempted to wander and to go back to all the smells and bells of Old Testament worship. And he says, look past all of that. Look upwards to the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for you. You know, that's what all of the Old Covenant signs were about. It all represented a shadow of what Jesus would do. The, the Day of Atonement, the high priest going and sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Hebrews tells us that Jesus passed through the heavens and sprinkled his own blood on that heavenly mercy seat to make atonement for our sins. The Old Covenant beautifully set before God's people this picture of those heavenly realities. But the Old Covenant alone, with its perfection, requirements of perfection, with its exclusivity and its endless requirements, it was intended to make them realize if that's what heaven is like, if it requires such perfection, how in the world could I ever go there? How in the world could I ever be fit for heaven because I am not perfect? That's what it, it was intended to make us ask. That's what the Old Testament was really teaching with the glory of that building, the tabernacle and then the temple, and the busyness of the priests and the hundreds of laws and the thousands of sacrifices taught that all our best efforts could not take away sin. In fact, all the Old Covenant could really do was show us our need to have our sin taken away. Just think about leprosy. In the Old Testament, leprosy was a skin disease that made those who suffer from it ritually unclean. They couldn't enter into worship. 
And the priests couldn't help. The priests couldn't cure leprosy. All they could do is say, yep, you're a leper, but you can't come into worship. There was nothing the priest could do except pronounce them clean once the leprosy was gone, if it was ever gone. That's what the Old Covenant did in summary. It was powerless to save. It had the power to condemn, but no power to save. And you and I are spiritual lepers. The Old Covenant says to us, you can't enter in. You're unclean. You need a priest who can make you clean. That's what verse 7 means when it says, you know, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. And it's not as if the old covenant, it was imperfect. It was exactly what God had designed it to be. But the old covenant's duty was to show us our need of one who could make us clean. That's why this passage speaks of a new covenant, which verse 6 tells us is much more excellent. And so the first thing we saw was that in the old covenant, God brought a glimpse of heaven down to earth. The second thing I want you to see is that the whole purpose of it was for him to be able to bring us, the dust of the earth, into heaven. See, in the new covenant, what God's doing is making us fit for the glory of heaven. That's why Jesus came, to take away the spiritual leprosy that so affects our hearts and alienates us from the presence of God so that all who trust Christ, who are numbered among his people, can join our voices in that true worship of heaven, that heavenly reality that we read about earlier in Revelation. The worship that goes on around the throne. See, the old covenant couldn't do that. It could identify the problems, but it couldn't provide change. The new covenant through Christ actually transforms us. We see three things here in in this text that the new covenant does, that Christ does in the new covenant to make us fit for worship. We're going to work backwards through them, but look at verse 12. The new covenant gives us a new status. For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. I worked for a a professor when I was in seminary. His name's Doug Kelly. Dr. Kelly had a photographic memory. I had never seen anything like it. He called me one day, and he said, I want you to go in the library and find a certain book. Shows how bad my memory is. I don't remember which book it was. But he said, go and find this book, and I want you to look at page 33 and tell me if I have this quote right. And so I went to the library, found it, called him, and he told me what he thought the quote was. I read it, and every word of it was right. I said, are you you just reading a paraphrase or something? I mean, how did you, why did you not know if it was right? And he said, well, it's been a while since I had read it, and I just wanted to make sure I was quoting it correctly. I said, when did you read it? This was in 2010. I said, when did you read it? He said, 1976. That was the last time he had read that paragraph. He quoted it to me perfectly. It was incredible. But you know, God's memory beats that. He never forgets anything. He can't forget anything unless he wills to do so. 
So when it says he'll remember our sins no more, it's not as if God is saying, I'm going to pretend you never did that. He's saying, I'm going to mete out the punishment for your sins, not on you, but on the Lord Jesus. And I want you to understand why that's so important. I want you to imagine you're a judge. And the bailiff brings before you the most heinous serial killer in the history of America. And the serial killer comes before you and he says, Judge, I think you should let me off. I know I've killed a lot of people, but I've also done a whole lot of good. You know, I've, I've given to charities. I help little old ladies across the street. And he lists his resume. And the judge is going to say, are you kidding me? Justice requires that your crimes be dealt with. You'd be an unjust judge if you said, you know, I think you've done enough good to make up for it. Our justice had to be satisfied. The justice, the the punishment for our sins had to be dealt with. And there's two ways that can go. Either we accept it ourselves, or it's laid upon the head of Christ. When God says, I'll remember your sins no more, he's not creating fiction as if you've never sinned. He's saying, your sins have already been dealt with in Jesus. You who believe in him, there is no more sin to be held against you. And so he changes our status. We go from sinner to saint in the economy of heaven. That is our status in heaven if you believe on the Lord Jesus. And then second, he changes our relationship with him. Verse 10 the end there, I'll be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and to each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. What, what he's saying here, it, it had to be prior to this, the word came through prophets and God was prophesying a day when all people would have hold of his word and would know him. You know, there was a picture of that in the old covenant It was a genealogical thing. It was a birthright for the Jews to be called the people of God. But in the new covenant, it's it's far greater. It's far more inclusive because if you don't know, if you don't have unblemished Jewish heritage, you are excluded under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, it's not a birthright. It's a new birthright. It's a rebirth right that God takes those of us who are foreigners, who are strangers and rebels, and he calls us sons and daughters. He brings us into his family. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. He gives, us to himse- he gives himself to us, and he takes us to himself. So he gives us a new relationship, far more intimate than anything that was known under the old covenant. And then again, working backwards, the beginning of verse 10, the new covenant gives us something else. It's a new heart. Look at verse 10. For the covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. You know, the problem with the old covenant 
as pure as it was, it was all external. It did not have the power to change. The laws were written in stone. It didn't have any inward power for us to live them out. Now, certainly, memorizing God's word is helpful. Psalm 1, Psalm 119 teach us that, but it, the old covenant gave no power for us to keep the law. What we needed not, was not just to know God's law. We needed a heart transplant. We needed a spiritual heart transplant. Listen to the prophecy of Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give, them, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God doesn't just change our status and our relationship. He transforms us inwardly so that we are new creations. He takes out that heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. Dr. Christian Barnard was the first surgeon to ever successfully accomplish a heart transplant. And he was talking to one of his patients afterwards, and he said, as the patient was recovering, would you like to see your old heart? And the patient agreed, and Dr. Barnard went up to a cupboard, and he took down a glass container that uh, contained his old heart and handed it to the patient, and the patient just surveyed it and studied it. The first man in history to ever hold his own heart in his hands. And he took a final look at the glass container, handed it back to the doctor, and he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he never looked at it again. You know, in essence, this is what Christ has done for us. He takes away our old heart of stone that was good at going through outward ritual and outward ceremony, but was left untouched by the personal knowledge of God. By, by knowing and walking with God, he takes away that old heart that gave us so much trouble, he gives us a new one, one with God's laws written upon it. It's a new heart so that we can live in such a way that we're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer, as, he, as Romans 8 says, hostile towards God. And we're, we're on the same page as God now because he gives us a new heart. Certainly, we still battle with our fleshly nature, but if, if you belong to Christ, you have a heart that now desires to honor God. And those things that once bored you are now a joy to you. The things that you once fought against become what you want to live for. You know, one way of summarizing it is that we once loved sin and fought against God. Now we love God and fight against sin. That's how you know if you've received the new heart. I can remember when God changed my heart. He gave me grace to forgive my sins, to become part of his family. But he also gave me a love for his word and for his people and for his worship and things that had once bored me to death became the joy and rejoicing of my soul. And as I began to make progress in the Christian life, I began putting sin to death and growing in grace. And I'll be the first to confess, it's a slow, clumsy process. It's not nearly as fast as I or probably my family would like it to be. 
But if you're a believer, if you've received the new heart, what you're going to find is that there's going to be an increasing love in you for the things of heaven. Not just the outward ceremonies represented in the old covenant, but the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. And you begin to understand that what your heart needs more than anything else is the presence of Jesus. That's what it looks like to have the new heart. And at the same time, you're going to find yourself feeling more and more out of joint in this world, more and more out of place in this world because your heart belongs with Jesus. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you, beloved? Uh, Have you developed a taste for heavenly things? Or are they but boredom to you? Have you been reconciled to God and thus have declared war against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or are you still at enmity with God? You are in one place or the other. You either have been given the heart of flesh or you still have that old heart of stone. I cannot imagine someone being indifferent towards sin, indifferent towards the glory of God, bored in worship, and actually thinking they are fit for heaven. Because what this text teaches us is that if you are bound for heaven, God not only changes your status, he gives you a relationship with him, and he teaches you to love him, to love his word, to love his people, and to love the glory of his name. And so let me ask you, has that happened? Has that happened in your life? My guess would be, If your answer is yes, you'll say, praise God. And if the answer is no, you're going to say something like this. I'm not that worried about it. You know, I walked an aisle when I was 17 years old. I'm a Christian. You may lean on your own resume of what you've done. I I was a Sunday school teacher. I have perfect attendance. Those are not the evidences of a transformed heart. The evidences of a transformed heart our love for Christ and his word and the glory of his name. It's not perfect. It's slow and clumsy. But if you have come to saving faith in Christ, this is what he says he'll do. Take out the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Let me kind of wrap up before we come to our application. The old covenant was full of shadows and copies In the new covenant, we get the real thing. We get Jesus himself. And what Jesus does is he takes us the dust of the earth. He gives us a new status, a new relationship, and a new heart so that we can be fitted for heaven, fitted for the presence of God. For man to dwell in the presence of God, two things, according to this passage, have to be clear. The memory of our sin must be put out of God's mind and the love of sin must be put out of our hearts. Has that happened to you? 
Because only the Lord Jesus can do that. Only the Lord Jesus can change our status, change our relationship, and change our hearts. We were created for this. We were recreated for this. And one day we will be resurrected for this to join our voices with the saints and the angels around the throne in heaven to praise the holiness of Christ, the King of heaven. How do we apply this text? Just one application, and that is you and I need to work to fix our eyes upon Jesus. You and I need to work towards that end. I want you to think about this. When Moses was up on the mountain getting all of these instructions about how the people were to worship and where the people were to worship, do you know what the people were doing? They were making a golden calf to bow down to. John Calvin was right. There is something in the human heart that is a, perfect, uh, a perpetual idol factory. If you and I are not consciously keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus, we will bow down to idols. The Apostle John says, guard yourself from idols. We're an earthy people and we want visible signs. We want a visible God. But the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life is to lift our eyes off of the earthy and onto the heavenly where the Lord Jesus is. When our eyes are there, the worries and the anxieties and the complaints of this world fade away because we find that the shadows have fled in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we long to see Jesus. We long to fix our eyes upon him, and we confess that we are so easily distracted. We're distracted by the earthy. We're distracted by our own idols, and we forget that the great object of our lives and the object of our worship is not here in some visible form, but he's in heaven. And so it may appear to outsiders that, that Christian worship is so plain and simple, and, and what's the point of it all? Well, the point of it all is that our great high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high because his work is finished. Our sacrifice has been made. Our redemption has been accomplished. And it's for that reason that we praise you and we will praise you for all eternity. In Jesus' name.